Our gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that all of your word is breathed out by you. We thank you that it is good and that it is good for us. And so we pray that you'd help us, especially if we have misconceptions about this passage, if we have any preconceived ideas. Help us, Father, to put them on hold for now as we engage with your word as you intend. And so we pray, Father, that you'll bless us in this and help me to be clear and to speak faithfully as I ought for your glory, the building up of your people here, and in Jesus' name. Amen. The Proverbs 31 woman. She is far more precious than jewels, so says chapter 31, verse 10. She is the wife that men want and the woman that other women love to hate. And it's not hard to see why. As we read through these final verses of Proverbs, we seem to be suddenly and randomly given a glimpse of this perfect woman. If Proverbs is putting her out as a standard for all women to meet, then all godly women will be able to cater Michelin-star quality food for their families and their many helpers made from exotic imported ingredients or her own locally grown seasonal produce. She'll be able to sew handcrafted quality clothing for her family and her servants and own a variety of businesses selling her artisanal goods. The Proverbs 31 woman never goes to sleep and also seems to have a perfect word for every occasion. The Proverbs 31 woman's children rise up early to bless and to praise her and all the mothers feel guilty at not being able to do that, have those kind of kids. And her husband evidently sits around all day doing nothing while getting all of the credit. Maybe that's why men love her. Uh, Seriously though, what is this passage doing here? Hollywood and the media have often been criticised for giving women everywhere impossible standards of beauty to reach. But could we say here that Proverbs is giving women in the church an impossible standard of godliness to reach? And who wrote this proverb? Who wrote this chapter of Proverbs? When you go back to the beginning of chapter 31, we learn of a guy named King Lemuel. He seems to be responsible for this. And it also seems that his mother is actually giving him advice in the first half, and perhaps she's continuing to give some advice on the kind of woman that he is meant to look for. But we're not sure who King Lemuel is. There's no Old Testament reference or record of a King Lemuel. And so perhaps it's thought maybe he's a Gentile king. But it matters actually very little who he is because God has taken these words, placed them in his Bible, in his scriptures, and intended them for his people. Now, who is this woman? Uh, There's a few reasons why I think that she's not some standard that women are meant to meet. First, she's unlikely to be the perfect wife that women are to look like because she would be setting an impossible standard. If she's the perfect woman that young men are to look for, then in answer to the question in verse 10, an excellent wife who can find, the answer is clearly no one. A woman like this, matching this description, surely cannot exist. Some people have suggested then that she could be Lady Wisdom personified. You remember in the first nine chapters of Proverbs, a father is writing to his son, encouraging his son to choose wisdom and warning him to reject folly. 
both of both wisdom and folly are personified as women. And so this father to his son is giving his son a picture, a visual picture of two women locked in battle as it might be for his attention. If the son chooses right, if he chooses the right invitation, especially in chapter 9, then he gets unlocked for him the wisdom in chapters 10 to 30. So you've got to see chapters 1 to 9 as this battle. Are you going to choose wisdom or are you going to choose folly? And if you choose wisdom, chapters 10 to 30 become unlocked for you. You get to work that out. Uh, You get to think through all those bits of wisdom in those chapters. And so then you get to chapter 31, and you see this woman, uh, this wife, and it's almost like this picture of what it's like to be married to wisdom, of what choosing wisdom is like. So maybe she's Lady Wisdom personified. Most likely, though, this woman represents an ideal, not the standard that women are expected to meet, but the ideal that all of God's people, and especially women, are to work towards. Now, the main reason for this is because of the structure of this last part. This is why I think this is, she's more of an ideal. See, Proverbs 31 is what we call an acrostic poem. Each line of the poem, and in our Bibles, each verse, starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So you could kind of say that she's the A to Z, or an A to Z, of an ideal woman. So in the same way that the New Testament lists godly character and fruit of the Spirit, the character of this godly woman is something that we keep coming back to in order to measure ourselves and find encouragement. That's right encouragement. She's not here to make us feel guilty about how we don't measure up. She's here to encourage us towards the godly and wise life. And she's also here, I think, to model for us what practical wisdom looks like. See, over the past three weeks, we saw uh, what Proverbs has to say on the topics of work, on wealth and, and words. And in this woman, we can see wisdom in work, wisdom in wealth, and wisdom with words. So with that introduction, let's look at this passage and see what we can learn from this woman. Now, the first point is the biggest point because most of this poem is taken up with the work of this woman. And as you skip over this passage, we're going to get, uh, go back and forth a little bit over it and keep your, pa- your Bibles open to Proverbs 31. We're going to be reading from it. As we skip over this, you'll notice that she's everything we've been looking at in the past few weeks. Now, remember, in relation to work... The twin temptations of work in this fallen world is to idolize work or to become idle in work. We can idolize work by making it the center of our lives, or we can think very lowly about work and start to slack off. This woman clearly does not make work an idol. So how does she do that? At the heart of idolatry, is the idea is the idea of making of taking something that is good and making it into an ultimate thing. Idolatry is not just about choosing something that's evil and bowing down before it, but idolatry is often taking something that which is good, like work. God made work good, He's made us for work, and then we turn it into the ultimate thing in our lives. We center our lives around it. For this woman. She refuses to make anything other than God the ultimate thing in her life. 
in the second half of verse 30, we find out that she fears the Lord. Now, it's kind of fitting that in the book of Proverbs and in the sermon series that we've been going through, short one as it may be, we finish where we began, the fear of the Lord. See, fearing God means that we, res- we are in respect and awe of God. It means that we trust Him and that at the same time, it also means that we are in right terror of Him. Trust and terror. Terror and trust. How do they go together? How does that look like? I shared this story three years ago, this sermon illustration three years ago, so I'm kind of guessing that some people here might not have heard it. It's from the Chronicles of Narnia. In these stories by C.S. Lewis, the great lion named Aslan represents Jesus. It's an allegory for Jesus. And in the Chronicles, there is a book called The Horse and His Boy, where Lewis tells of a conversation between a small pony named Huynh, a young girl named Aravis, and a black stallion named Bree. Now, the three of these characters, they're having a discussion about whether Aslan actually exists. Bree, the proud stallion, prances around, sharing his thoughts that Aslan is a myth, a legend. And while he's doing this, proudly pontificating about how his, his theories, Aslan appears behind him. Quinn and Aravis are frozen. Their jaws have dropped to the ground. The lion is bigger than any other lion they have ever seen before. But Bree has not noticed. So, Bree says, No doubt, when they speak of him as a lion, they only mean he's as strong as a lion, or to our enemies, of course, as fierce as a lion. Even a little girl like you, Aravis, must see that it would be quite absurd to suppose that he is a real lion. Indeed, it would be disrespectful. If he was a lion, he'd have to be a beast just like the rest of us. Why, if he was a lion, he'd have to have four paws and a tail and whiskers. For just as he said the word whiskers, one of Aslan's had tickled his ear. Bree shot away like an arrow to the other side of the enclosure, and there turned. The wall was too high for him to jump, and he could fly no further. Aravis and Huynh both started back. There was a moment of intense silence. And then Huynh, though shaking all over, gave a strange little neigh and trotted across to the lion. Please, she said. You are so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. Trust and terror. Huynh trusted Aslan. She trots over him to him to speak with him. She's drawn to his beauty and his majesty, and yet she knows that at any moment he could eat her. Fearing God is exactly like that. To be enamored by the beauty and the majesty of God. To be in awe of him, to be in respect of him, and at the same time recognize that he is the all-powerful one, and you are not. It is to be rightly terrified that God is God. 
See, if there is no fear of God before your eyes, then I dare say you may not know him properly. Now, I'm laboring this point because it's so crucial. Proverbs starts and ends with this point. Fearing God is the essential foundation of being able to live wisely and rightly in God's world. If you don't fear God, you cannot truly be a wise person. Back to Proverbs 31. This woman fears God, and because she fears God properly, her work never becomes the center of her life. God is the center of her life. And she is definitely not idle in her work either. She's not slacking off. And the fact that she's, she's got wealth is probably indicative of the fact that her husband is actually very wealthy. But she's not just content to live at home off his wealth. She works hard. And so you come with me to verses 13 to 15, and we see how she works with her hands. Verse 13, she seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. The comparison of her to ships in verse 14 is not to say that she's a boat, but it's to say that she goes to great lengths to provide food for her family. Right? She goes to great lengths. She's not just journeying 30 minutes down the road to Sunnybank to get Asian groceries. She's rising up early to provide food for her family and her servants. She's searching far and wide to provide for their needs. This hardworking picture continues in verses 18 and 19. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. You see that there in the second half of verse 18. She's up late at night, not on Facebook or on Instagram, just like mindlessly scrolling through. She's up late working by the evening lamp light. The distaff and the spindle were the instruments used to make textiles that are then used to make high-quality fabrics that she sews together for her family. And you can see this in verse 24. She makes her own clothing. Verse 24, she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchants. She's making these linen garments, as we read in verse 21, you jump back, for the benefit of her family. Verse 21, she is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. All right, winter time comes, and she's not worried. Her hard work has, for her household means that her family and her servants are well taken care of. They are dressed appropriately. Right? She's not just knitting a, a woolen jumper. She's got the thermal gear all done. Right? Linen and fine purple, we find out in verse 22, they are the marks of high quality. Right? She's not you know, making stuff like cheap stuff. She's doing some really good high quality stuff. And all of this hard work is done for the benefit of her home. Have a look at verse 27. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She's not idle. She's not slacking off. She works hard and she does so for the benefit of her family. This is not a woman who is focused on climbing the career ladder 
to the neglect of her children or looking at work, uh, going to work and palming off her children to someone else to look after. Her work complements the work she does at home. So here's the general principle. Faithfulness in our working lives needs to allow faithfulness in our home life. Faithfulness in our working lives needs to allow faithfulness in our home life. Now, some of you guys are married. Some of you have kids. Uh, Some of you guys are hoping to be married one day. And this is a principle that you need to be thinking through now and working through now. Because I know in the first service that there are couples and families who are struggling with this. So let me say this clearly. With great love and with compassion for your situation. But let me be clear, and I'll give you the principle, and I'll, I'll invite you to talk with me afterwards about the details of your situation. But let me say this out of love for you and your families. If work demands so much of your effort that you are absent as a spouse or a parent, then it might be that you are being unfaithful. If your work demands so much effort that you are absent as a spouse or a parent, then it might be that you are being unfaithful. This is going to influence the way that you think about work. It's going to influence the way that you think about your roles when children come. So often, I'm going to go on a tangent here for you, for the benefit of you guys. So often I've encountered people, Asians, and even Christians in the church, who think through these issues very pragmatically. The starting point for thinking through where should I work and how should we look after our family begins with pragmatics. It's the pragmatics that encourages a father to work overseas to provide for his family. It's pragmatics that encourages the family to push the mum to go to work even after, shortly after having children so you can pay off the mortgage a bit quicker. These are tricky issues, and I'm not saying there are blanket rules on this. But our thinking should always be informed first by the Bible. And that's a great challenge to what we want pragmatically in our lives. Work outside of the home benefits the home. In this woman, we have a picture of someone who is not obsessed with work, idolizing it, but not a sluggard either. She is wisely putting into practice what Proverbs has preached on how you should work. Our next two points are very brief in comparison to the first, so don't worry if you're thinking, wow, we're only, we just finished point one. Uh, the next thing we see is that this woman is very wealthy. In verse 16, she buys her own plot of land. I'm not familiar with the real estate business in the Old Testament, but I do know that usually the people who bought land were the wealthy, right? There was no middle class. Well, most of us come from a middle class background. We would not have existed Only the wealthy were able to buy land. So she is a woman of considerable wealth. It also seems in verse 18 that part of her wealth comes from her artisanal products that she makes. She's able to make things and sell them for profit. 
And yet, all of this wealth is not stored up for herself. She's generous with it. So we read in verse 20, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. Right? So she's got enough wealth to feed and clothe her family and her servants, and she uses some of that wealth as well for the poor. Now the verbs there in verse 20, to open her hand, to reach out her hands, they are clear echoes of the way that God's hand is always open and reaching out to help the poor, the widow, the orphan, the refugee. So her generosity is a reflection of God's generosity. There's a clear echo there. In verse 26, we see more of her character. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongues. I think part of this woman's well-earned reputation is not just that she works hard, but that her, her words overflow with wisdom. Her words are backing up her life. She's always ready to teach kindness. Her, on her tongue carries the sense that she's always ready with the right word, and a word that is kind, that brings life and builds up other people. I don't know how long you guys have been in Australia for, especially if you're a student, but if you've been in Australia for long enough, you'll have noticed by now that one of the ways that Aussies express affection for each other is to make fun of each other, right? It's a cultural thing that I think goes back to how Australia started as a nation. But the thing is that when Aussies poke fun at each other, they know that they are showing affection, but it's actually kind of assumed. They never say, ah, you know... Mate, Josh, you're such a loser, but I love you. They never say, I love you. They just say, hey, loser, Josh, how are you going, right? That's a way of actually showing affection. Now, I know that this culture of making jokes about each other is fairly normal, even in our church. But here's the thing. I'm not saying we should stop that. But I think the encouragement from this little verse is to keep working out how we can use our words kindly to build each other up. Final point before we start wrapping up. The Proverbs 31 woman is extraordinary, and this passage is littered with her strength and her honor. You go right back to the start of the passage, and you will see that while she might be a woman of great wealth, it's her character and her godliness that makes her even more precious than jewels. Right, verse 10, an excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. Right, her character of godliness and love means that her husband trusts her. Now, this is one of the few times in the Bible that someone is positively putting their trust in another human. The husband trusts her, and his trust in her gives him security. He will have no lack of gain. In terms of strength, verse 17, you look at verse 17, it paints her in the picture of a warrior. She is dressed in strength. <laughs> the Proverbs 31 woman was the original Wonder Woman, right? In terms of honor, verse 23, we read that the husband is exalted because of her work. Now, again, this is not to say that he just sits around all day taking credit for her work. He gets to sit down at the gate with the elders because he's one of the leaders of the town. And as one of the leaders of the town, his reputation is enhanced by her reputation. It's almost to say that this couple is like a power couple. <laughs> 
right? You guys look at Ben and Faith and you think, wow, power couple, right? You know, marriage goals, hashtag, right? Well, this couple puts Ben and Faith to shame. In terms of the future, she's an optimist. Verse 25, she laughs at the future, not naively, but from a place of trust in God. She knows that the future is ultimately held in the hands of the God that she trusts. And in the end, that's what makes her extraordinary. Verse 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Her trust is not in her physical beauty or in her charm. At the word vain, there is the word chevel, the Hebrew word chevel. If you've done Ecclesiastes in the last couple of years, you'll know that the writer of Ecclesiastes constantly uses this word to describe all aspects of life, chevel. Beauty and charm are chevel. They are fleeting. They are here one day and they are gone the next. But this woman trusts in God. And for that, she is worthy to be praised. This is an extraordinary woman, worthy of praise because she trusts in God. Right at the end here, we're being reminded again that this changes everything. Back at the start of Proverbs, Solomon said, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. And here we see a wise woman living wisely because she fears God. A wise life follows after fearing the Lord. And I think that's the purpose of this passage. The purpose of this passage is to teach us what a wise life looks like and that a wise life follows after fearing God. So let me finish with some applications. First, I want to say some applications for all of us. And then I want to address the women with some particular applications. And then there are some applications for the men. You won't miss out. First application for all of us. Fear God. None of what this extraordinary woman does and achieves is worth anything if she does not fear God. Her trust is not in her physical beauty or charm. Right? Sorry. Uh, and for us today, fearing God means to trust Jesus. Uh, the way that we fear God today is to come to Jesus for forgiveness for our sins, to come to Jesus for the restoration of our relationship with God the Father, and to come to Jesus to trust that his grace saves us and his grace will lead us home. So before we go any further, I need to ask you, and we need to ask ourselves, do we fear God? Do we trust Jesus for our forgiveness and for grace? And if you haven't taken that step, if you're not sure what's holding you back, second application I said at the start that this woman represents an ideal. She's not a standard that you have to meet in order to be godly, but she represents an ideal to strive for. And she's an ideal not just for women, though women have a more immediate connection with her. See, she presents this ideal of wisdom and wise living, following, fearing God. And when you look through the New Testament and the demands on Christians in their lives, you notice the same thing. I mean, We had Alice read out for us Romans 12, verses 9 to 16 before. And if you just take one of those instructions and you ask yourself, how are you going with that? Right? You go, okay, I might be doing okay with that. But then you look at the whole list and you think, oh, okay, I'm doing okay with this. I'm actually doing well with this, but I'm really struggling with that one. And you notice 
that as you look at that list, that what frames it, what that list builds upon, the foundation of that list is chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. These, this list doesn't come out of nowhere. It's in the context of what he says in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 12, 1 and 2. Romans 12, verse 1 to 2. Actually, I'll just read verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what are you to do? You see that there? What are you to do? You are to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? You see the word therefore? When you see a therefore in Scripture, what's the question you need to ask? What is the therefore therefore? The therefore is there because it links the ideas back. Why are you to live as a living sacrifice, to do these things, to be challenged, to live a godly life? And the answer is because of the mercies of God. Right? In immediate context, it refers to chapters 9 to 11, which are built on chapters 1 to 8, which you could summarize in the phrase, the gospel. If you put your trust and your faith in Jesus after having heard the gospel, it necessarily flows out into godly living. And that is exactly what happens here in Proverbs 31. When you look at this woman, you have to notice that her godliness and her wise living is built on fearing God. And that pattern of trust first and godliness following is the pattern for us today as well. We trust Jesus and godliness and wise living follow. So the second application, again, a little bit general. But if you have trusted Jesus, are you living that out? So that's the one thing the Proverbs 31 woman presents as the ideal. Fearing and trusting God leads to a new life. So how are you going in your godliness and wise living? Third application for the women here. Whether you're single or married, the Proverbs 31 woman gives us a picture of the ideal wife. But as Claire Smith insightfully notices in her excellent book, God's Good Design, she may be an ideal picture, but she's not a complete picture. We know nothing about her emotional life, what her family is like, how much she loves them. We know nothing about the complexities of her life, her frustrations, her disappointments, her illnesses, what issues she might have with aging parents and so on. And because we don't know so much about her, I don't think we're being told that you need to be exactly like her. How many times have you heard a sermon on this? Presented on Proverbs 31, telling you women, this is what you ought to be like. How many times have you read through it and felt the guilt of comparing yourself to her? If you're here next year, go along to Bloom. I had to buy a book for Steph in preparation to prepare for Bloom next year. And it's a book about comparisons. How many times have you read this, compared yourself to her, and thought, I can't do that. 
I don't think we're meant to do that. We're not meant to read Proverbs like that. We're not meant to read Proverbs like that in general. We don't read the book as a list of rules and formulas for life. Proverbs, remember, is not a manual for living. But like the other Proverbs in the book, we're being invited to meditate on what this woman is like. Work out what she does, why she does it, and then work out what that might look like in our lives. So again, the encouragement for the women as we read this chapter, don't be discouraged that she looks so perfect. Be encouraged to pursue wisdom in all of your life as you keep trusting Jesus. Fourth and final application for the men here. Two things, two quick things to say. First, if you're married, don't ever use this passage against your wife. If you're single, don't ever use this passage against your future wife. Sure, look at this passage and go, this, this is what I'm looking for in a woman. But then, as you're married, never say to your wife, why aren't you more like the Proverbs 31 woman? If, you, if this passage, this passage might represent and present the ideal wife, but you know who the ideal man is? Go read Psalm 112. Right there, you have almost the, uh, the, the men's counterpoint to Proverbs 31. Psalm 112, memorize that, look at that, and think to yourself, you can't do that. And then more than that, Jesus is the picture of the ideal man. If you ever say to your wife, why aren't you more like the Proverbs 31 woman, even in your heart? I give permission to your wives to come back and say, why aren't you more like Jesus? I hope the Spirit and pray the Spirit convicts you of that. Secondly, I'm going to touch on this briefly because one of the major plans for next year is that we'll expand on this topic in Grunt. For the men here, especially the men who are married, who have, who have boyfriends or are hoping to be married one day, I want you to clearly see that Proverbs, the Proverbs 31 woman might work hard outside the home, but she does so in order to serve her household. When you look through Proverbs 31, it is very clear that her primary sphere of influence is in the home. So men... We need to be lovingly supportive of the role of women in the home. Now, this clearly means, does not mean, it clearly does not mean that she's a doormat. It clearly does not mean that she belongs in the kitchen. You cannot read Proverbs 31 and come to that conclusion. But it does mean that we need to be very careful and we need to take our time and seek counsel if necessary. If we're considering encouraging our wives to go back to work, especially soon after the kids have arrived. If a woman's primary sphere is the home, then anything that takes her out of that needs to serve the family. Not the budget, not your lifestyle, not the mortgage, not even the kids' education. It needs to serve the family first. Now, this assumes knowledge about the roles of husbands and wives and parents. And we're going to tease that out more in Grunt, but that's the principle. And again, this is not a hard and fast rule, so don't hear me saying that if a woman works after having children, she's being ungodly. Don't hear me say that. 
But I am saying that Proverbs 31 presents the ideal, and we should all keep working towards that. And by God's grace and the encouragement of each other, we can keep working towards that. Let me pray. Father in heaven, this has been a big series in Proverbs, searching and seeking to understand your wisdom. So our simple prayer, whether it be in our work, in the ways that we use our wealth, in the ways that we use our words, in the type of person that you want us to be, we pray, help us be wise. Amen.